previously on No Other Way. Frank recalled ending a standoff by commanding a rooftop SWAT member wound the perpetrator's shoulder, rescuing the perp's son whom he'd taken hostage. He later visited his estranged ex-wife Nora, who'd grown distant since the death of their young daughter Zoe. She mentioned a name that made Frank uncomfortable. I ran into Elias the other day. Huh. How is he? Putting himself back together, just like us. I look forward to a day when we can interact without him feeling compelled to apologize. In a moment of vulnerability, Nora and Frank fell back into one another's arms. I miss this. I miss it more. Claudia recognized the location where the first nuclear device was uncovered. It's a government black site. It's where they detain persons of interest who they deem a threat off the books. And received a visit from our parole officer, Joe who posed an ominous question. Where's the body, Claudia? Where's the body, Claudia? Sam tracked down getaway driver Harrison Gailey and Roshonda Mickelson, the woman who executed his partner, Mac, in retaliation for the murder of her son, Josiah. Don't move! Don't you move! While recuperating at home, Sam was attacked by a masked assailant who assaulted him and escaped, leaving him battered and screaming on his bathroom floor. Martin visited his lawyer, Albert O'Malley, who assuaged his client's fears. It's okay, Marty. Whatever it is, whatever you've done, you'll move past it. He received a disturbing call from a mystery woman with a dire warning. Why the 40 officer just surround my goddamn warehouse? The warehouse is his? Ours. I didn't know that. I don't know anything. Well, you better find out who does, Marty. Your family's life's depend on it. And whisked away his wife Angela and their young son to his father-in-law's home for safety. Back in his driveway, Martin weeped as he replayed the threatening video he received, taken from inside his sleeping son's bedroom. And Agent Brubaker's interrogation of Harrison Gailey leads to his death, which Brubaker caused to taunt the voice. Your move, asshole. And now... Chapter 3 In a darkened bedroom on a rainy night, a phone rings. Someone groans drowsily in the dark. Uh. A light is turned on above a nightstand. Martin's lawyer, Albert O'Malley, leans into the light as he answers. O'Malley. Slow down. Slow down. Take a deep breath. Where are you? Were there any witnesses? You call an ambulance? I'll take care of it. Stay off the phone. I'll be right there. O'Malley hangs up and leaps from the bed. In his car, O'Malley balances his phone between his ear and shoulder as he navigates the slippery freeway road. Right. Just south of the 405. Who are you bringing? Okay. Okay, they're good. All right, I want you to take her to the medical center on Grand. My contact, Peter, will meet you outside and take it from there. Take the other guy to Cedars. Hopefully he's still unconscious. Yeah, I'm pulling up now. How soon will you get here? Good. O'Malley pockets his phone as his car slows and crosses into the right lane. 
Up ahead, two sets of skid marks lead into a guardrail which has been breached and has been wide open, leading into a patch of woods. He pulls his car to the side and steps down into the brush. In the woods, O'Malley surveys the scene. Two wrecked vehicles lie mere feet from one another. He approaches the first car, which has been around a tree. In the driver's seat, Elias Gray, a man in his 30s, is slumped over his wheel, unconscious. In the distance, an ambulance siren wails. Ow. O'Malley whips around to find a younger Frank Cole, trembling, sobbing, and bruised, staggering toward him from the second car, which is turned on its side. Frank snaps out of his memory and back into the present. He stands in the steamy shower, caressing Nora from behind, peace and love in her eyes, fear and regret in his. She whispers into his ear, (laughs) I have to go, and slips from his embrace as she exits the shower wrapping herself in a towel on her way out of the bathroom. Frank takes a moment before shutting off the water and exiting himself. He hears the vibration of his phone and wraps himself in a towel as he crosses the room and grabs it from a shelf. He reads the display. It's a text from Captain Orson, which reads, Sorry, kid. Below the text is a link with the foreboding timestamp, 6 p.m. Frank looks intensely from his phone, to the bathroom door and back. He clicks the link, which activates an audio clip. I, I don't know. I need an ambulance. We have to... She's not breathing! S- slow down. Slow down. Take a deep breath. Where are you? Uh... Angel Crest Highway. Uh, near exit 2. Were there any witnesses? Uh, I don't know. You call an ambulance? Help me! I'll take care of it. Stay off the phone. I'll be right there. Frank hangs up, breathing heavily and staring hauntedly into space. Chapter 3 Deeper In his driveway, Martin sits in his car, breathing deep and regaining his composure. He wipes the remaining tears from his face and exits. Emotionally drained, he drags himself to his front door, unlocks it, and enters his foyer, hanging his head. Welcome home, Marty. Martin looks up and his heart rate skyrockets. Vera Diaz lounges, legs crossed on his couch. Late thirties and a woman whose menace and beauty are entwined. Vera's business attire reflects her current chilly mood. Don't look so surprised. You know how I am about protecting my investments. That line triggers a memory in Martin. On a posh restaurant patio, a younger Martin sits at a table in a three-piece suit and tie, a wireless earbud in his ear. The seat across from him is empty, but has a place setting. O'Malley's excited voice emanates from the earbud. I'm telling you, this woman's tongue did things that would make a porn star blush. Congrats. Sounds like it was a good time. A good time? Come on, Marty. Get your nuts out of Angela's purse. You're allowed to admire a legendary blowjob. She had me dancing on sunshine in the dark. Martin checks his watch and surveys the scene. Your friend's running late. Second thoughts, perhaps? Vera's got a lot of irons in the fire. She'll be there. She's dying to meet you. 
What have you been saying about me? I said, if you're looking for a financial advisor, I got you covered. My boy Marty's the best there is. I also said, you don't put out on the first date, but it's not out of the question on the second. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't really say that, did you? Mr. Chen? Martin looks up and finds Vera, now seductively dressed, hovering over the table. His eyes go wide. Ah, uh, she's here. Talk to you later. I bet you can see all the way. Martin disconnects the call and pockets the earbud as he rises and offers a handshake. Call me Martin. Pleasure to meet you. The pleasure is all mine. He opens her chair and she takes a seat. What a gentleman. I was raised well. Were you? She takes in the view. It's beautiful. It's a favor of mine. I proposed to my wife here. Married? So young. Well... We had a kid. Seemed like the right thing to do. A kid as well. You're stuck. That's an odd way to put it. How would you put it? I would say my life is... predetermined. Nothing is predetermined. That's the beauty of life. There's what you want out of it. And there's what it gives you. Why me? Your lawyer speaks highly of you. And I trust his judgment. How do you two know each other? We have aligning interests. One of which is discretion. And we are both very protective of our... investments. Her flirtation has his full attention. Martin snaps back to his present situation as two of Vera's henchmen enter the foyer behind him, flanking him on each side. Make yourself at home. It is yours after all. He moves apprehensively into the living room and takes a seat at the opposite end of the couch. What is your family? Please, leave them out of this. But you brought mine into it. It's not me. Then who? I don't know. I don't know who this is, what I want, why they're targeting me. Watch your tone, Marty. He works to keep his emotions in check. We will need to reroute operations from the warehouse. The first thing you need to do is offload that property. But you need to tell me everything. I wish I had something to tell. Well, maybe they can help jog your memory. Vera gestures to her men, who lean down and lift Martin from the couch. Uh. In a suburban neighborhood... A detective questions Les Kaminsky, an obese man in his late 50s sporting a dirty white tank top and dangling an unlit cigar in one hand. Captain Orson lingers nearby, taking notes. All I know is, I come home from a late shift. Halfway through my TV dinner, your men start banging on my door like I stole something. Have you been contacted by any strange people online, Mr. Kaminsky? Maybe... Opened an email you shouldn't have. Gave someone remote access, perhaps? No. And I don't pal around with terrorists, either. Could be you were a target for some sort of swatting. Swatting? Orson chimes in. Someone could have tricked authorities into believing that you were a threat. Would you mind coming downtown and giving us a statement? It'll really help us with the paperwork. The detective gestures for Kaminsky to get in his car. Kaminsky looks between them, annoyed, before zeroing in on Orson. 
If you spent more time getting real criminals off the street, you wouldn't need innocent, taxpaying civilians like me to do the job for you. Kaminsky throws a cigar to the ground and stomps his way to the detective's car. I appreciate your cooperation, Mr. Kaminsky. Prick. Just as they get in and drive off, FBI agent Brubaker pulls up to the scene, exits his car, and approaches. Captain, what do we got? Another dead end. The voice must have hacked the poor schmuck's account. Could be a connection between them. If there is one, we'll find it. We're running out of leads. The van driver was found dead in his cell overnight. Gailey's dead? Huh. Must have been one hell of an interrogation. Brubaker throws Orson an icy cold glare. I hope that was merely a poor attempt at humor. But on the off chance it wasn't, I don't appreciate the implication, Captain. A key witness turning up dead is not cause for celebration at the FBI. Perhaps there was foul play in that jail. Hell, for all I know, he did it to himself. It'd be a testament to the depravity of the voice's accomplices that they would be willing to take their own lives to mask his identity. Brubaker moves in close. If you're having doubts of your place in this investigation, Captain Orson, I can always find another contact in law enforcement to chaperone this thing. I'll be sure to work my material at open mic night before springing it on you next time. I'm sure we just want the same thing. To bring this guy down. Right? I've ordered a full autopsy. Hopefully we'll get some preliminary results in the morning and start to get to the bottom of this. If that's alright with you. Hey, it's your show. Orson's phone rings. He pulls it from his pocket and answers. Go for Orson. Send it over. Orson gives Brubaker a concerned look. Looks like our friend is back. His phone chimes and he reads the display. 6 p.m. A field hospital in Afghanistan. A hurried swarm of medics, nurses, and military personnel pass by cots occupying wounded soldiers. Among the chaos emerges field nurse Sophie Barnes, 30 and overworked, wearing a concerned expression. Clipboard in hand, she approaches a particular cot and stands beside it. On the cot, a figure lies on their side, facing away from her, shivering and whimpering quietly. Sophie closes her eyes and breathes deep before taking a seat beside the bed. Hello, my name is Sophie. I need to ask you some questions. Is that okay? Can you tell me what happened? Do you know who did this to you? Do you know how many there were? Desperate to help, Sophie leans in closer, speaking in a hushed, reassuring tone. Lance Corporal Vasquez, I want to help you, but you need to talk to me. Could you please talk to me? Claudia turns slightly toward her. A few years younger, bruised, bloodied, eyes hysterical. Claudia shakes and sobs uncontrollably, a shattered human being. A parking lot in Griffith Park. Present day Claudia pushes back the memory as she sits in her car, waiting. 
She spots present-day Sophie approaching. Sophie checks her surroundings one time before slipping into Claudia's passenger seat. Claudia's mood lightens upon seeing Sophie. Sophie remains guarded. You mind? (laughs) Claudia raises her arms. Do what you gotta do. Sophie leans in and pats her down head to toe and back again. Good to see you too, Sophie. How are you and yours? What do you need? Uh, I have to move the body. I need your help. Sophie is dumbfounded. Is that what the voice is after? I don't know, but my parole officer sure is. Your P.O. knows? She doesn't know. She suspects. But I can't risk it. Perhaps moving it is risking it. She's got to be keeping you on a short leash. Hell, she'll probably be staking me out now. I wouldn't have reached out if I thought there was another way. Sophie appears to consider it before reaching her decision. I'm so sorry about what happened to you, Vasquez. And I'll never forget what you've done for us. But I have a family now. I can't go back. You won't. This is the last thing, Sophie. This time we'll bury him for good somewhere farther and deeper, and we'll never look back. Sophie looks Claudia in the eyes with a slight dose of pity. With all due respect, Lance Corporal, you live your life looking back. Take good care of yourself. She leaves the car. Claudia ponders her words as she plans her next move. In Nora's bathroom, Frank crouches on the floor in the corner. He can still hear the heavy rain that night. In the woods, O'Malley regards Frank, stunned at his bruised and battered visage. Frank. Oh, Jesus. I can't help her. Relax. Here they come. Two ambulances pull to a stop. Two sets of EMTs rush into the woods, hauling stretchers. O'Malley nods to Frank's car. She's in that one. Then to Elias's. The other's still out. The EMTs sprint toward their respective vehicles. Zoe! Zoe! Frank, come with me. O'Malley drags Frank away and back to the freeway. Frank sits in the chair in the corner of an ER waiting room. O'Malley sits beside him, whispering into Frank's ear. Frank's mind barely holds onto reality. Their attention is taken by a doctor who enters and gestures for Frank to follow. At the end of a hallway, the doctor leans into Frank and speaks confidentially. Frank's expression gradually turns to teary-eyed despair. He grabs onto the doctor's lab coat, pleading in desperation. A crowd soon forms, doctors, nurses, security, to separate the doctor from Frank's grip and subdue him on the floor. Frank and Nora sit in a cemetery among friends and family, dressed in black as a pastor preaches beside a picture of Zoe. Frank holds Nora close as she cries on his shoulder. In an L.A. courthouse, Frank is joined by O'Malley as they console a weeping Nora on a hallway bench. Elias exits from a courtroom nearby, stealing a sorrowful, guilt-ridden glance in their direction as he passes. He stops and approaches them, much to his lawyer's chagrin. Nora rises to meet him. I'm, I'm so sorry. If there's anything 
I could ever do anything at all. Bring her back. Before Elias can respond, Nora slaps him across the face. (gasps) His lawyer pulls him away as Frank and O'Malley hold her back. Frank's mind brings him back to his present, crouching on Nora's bathroom floor. He looks to the ceiling, pleading silently for more time before pulling himself up. In the living room, Nora watches the news as she gets ready for work. On the TV, news reporter Patty Dorham is conducting an on-the-street segment, holding a microphone in front of a random passerby. Below them, the Chiron reads, What would you do? Absolutely not. Really? Not even a hesitation? The things in my past, I would definitely have to go into hiding. Even if that would trigger the release of a nuclear device and thousands would lose their lives. Would I be one of them? No. I'm good with that. Well, some interesting responses to such a harrowing predicament. I'm Patty Durham, and this has been another edition of What Would You Do? Back to you in the studio. Frank enters, fully clothed now, his phone dangling from his hand. Nora crosses over and embraces him, unaware of the terror in his eyes. When she pulls back, it registers. What? What is it? Frank looks into her eyes. He holds her face in his hands, taking her in one last time. After a moment, Frank leans into her ear and whispers. Nora gradually shakes her head in disbelief. More and more aggressively. With one sudden move, Nora pushes Frank away from her and toward the door with all her weight. Get out. I'm sorry. Get out! Please. Get out of my goddamn house now! I couldn't tell you. Don't! I never thought I'd have to tell you. Touch me! Please. Don't touch me! Don't ever touch me again! You monster! Please! I hate you! Nora throws the door open and pushes him out onto the doorstep. She slams the door and Frank stumbles backward. Her voice echoes as he staggers away, head in his hands. I hate you! What are you gonna do? I hate you! What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? I hate you! What are you gonna do? 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 After an elementary school recital, parents and kids make their way to the parking lot. As they go, they pass by Squeak and Claudia. Squeak looks at Claudia in utter amazement as they engage in a whispered argument, unaware that Squeak's eight-year-old niece is about to pass by. I'm not going to help you dig up a fucking body, Claudia. Hey. Hey, sweetie. Great job. Way to go. Thank you, Uncle. Have you lost your mind? It's someplace secluded, Squeak. No one will know. Absolutely not. Listen, I looked into that warehouse. It's been shut down about a year now, officially. Unofficially, a buddy of mine's been picking up some extra cash delivering crates there for the port of Long Beach. Crates of what? I don't know. And neither does he. They pay him, he moves them. No questions asked. They who? Venture Industries, LLC. Did the name Martin Chen ring a bell to your guy? No. Well, perhaps he needs some coercing. Where can I find him? Squeak recognizes the torment in her eyes. Listen, Claudia, I- I'm worried about you. 
You gotta move on from this. You're back with your family now. Whatever it is the voice is gonna reveal, maybe it's best you just let it happen. And don't you want to live your life? Claudia stares off and grows emotional. <laughs> I spent three months in that hospital. Sometimes... I don't think I ever made it out. Claudia. Squeak places a hand on her shoulder. She moves away slightly, refusing his sympathy and putting her guard back up, wiping away a tear she didn't realize was there. <clears throat> Let me know if you get any info on that black site, will ya? Of course. I appreciate you. She playfully jabs him on the shoulder and heads off. A ballroom packed with law enforcement letting off steam. At a podium, a younger Captain Orson gives a speech while balancing a drink in one hand and a plaque in the other. It's been a blessing being his police captain for the last few years. But a curse having me for a captain though, right? But you persevered many tense and trying ordeals. What sets you apart? You really care. For everyone involved, the perp, the victim, anyone in harm's way, really, it's your humanity. That's why I see no one more fit to accept this award than Officer Franklin Cole. Get up here, you bastard. Maybe we can sway him to run for office, huh? What do you say? Across the room, a younger Frank Cole downs his drink and makes his way to the stage. As he passes fellow officers, they pat him on the back, cheer, offer hugs and handshakes. He steps onto the stage and he and Orson embrace. Orson pecks him on the cheek. As he holds one side of the plaque, Frank holds the other as their picture is taken. Orson steps off the stage, leaving Frank with the plaque and the podium. To truly serve and protect takes unity. Because I couldn't do what I do without that unity, I share this award with each and every one of you. Not literally, of course. <laughs> this bad boy is coming home with me. But um, I truly am honored and grateful. Thank you very much. As Frank steps off the stage and back into a congratulatory crowd, a younger O'Malley slithers up beside him and throws an arm over his shoulder. Do I know you? You do now. The name's Albert O'Malley. O'Malley offers his hand and Frank shakes it. What can I do you for, Albert? Call me Al. I'm actually here to do for you. O'Malley guides Frank out of the room. Frank and O'Malley stroll along a sparsely populated balcony. Couldn't help but hear you may be making a run for office. Well, it was a little tough to ignore coming out of the loudspeaker and all. <laughs> I'm somewhat of a crisis negotiator myself, you could say. O'Malley withdraws a card from his inner pocket and passes it to Frank. A lawyer. In the abstract, I suppose. But all that I offer couldn't possibly fit on a card. Your rep may be impeccable now, but there's nothing the world loves more than a downfall. Are you rooting for it? <laughs> Not at all. I admire you. You saved a lot of lives. But anyone can fall prey to a scandal. And you prevent them? I neutralize them. I could name quite a few law enforcement officials in this building alone who benefited from my services. I wouldn't, of course. The balcony entrance door swings open, revealing Orson and the rooftop SWAT officer standing in the doorway with shots in their hand. 
Hey, Frank. We got a shot with your name on it. Get your ass in here. Frank waves a confirmation. I feel we're putting the cart way before the horse. It's just a thought for the moment. Well, you hold on to that. In case of emergency, break open glass. Frank nods goodbye and pockets the card. Congrats again. O'Malley turns his attention to the skyline as Frank joins his crew. The party winds down. Frank sits at the bar, flanked by Orson and the rooftop SWAT. They hold their shots together as the rooftop SWAT makes a toast. Here's to one silver-tongued son of a gun. A pleasure working with you, Frank. Thanks for having my back on that roof. Liquor in one hand and a gun in the other. We couldn't take that chance. That kid may not be with us today if it weren't for you. Wish we could say the same for his pop. Frank is taken aback. Behind his back, Orson gestures to the rooftop SWAT to drop the subject. Frank looks between them. What happened? Orson lowers his head, ashamed of keeping the secret. When the bullet pierced his shoulder, Frank, the perp's subclavian artery was pierced. He didn't make it. Frank takes it hard. Sir, I took the shot. This is my burden. Let me carry it. No, hey. I made the call. It's mine. After a moment of reverence, Orson pats him on the back. Come on, kid, you're still a hero. Frank shuts his eyes tight against the news as he takes another shot. In his apartment living room, present-day Frank lounges on his couch, staring intently at the glass on his table and the gun beside it. But this time, instead of water, the glass is filled with liquor. He and the glass engage in a stare-down. In a moment of teary-eyed weakness, Frank takes the drink in his hand and downs it, shaking with regret and shame as the liquor courses through his body for the first time in years. His phone rings beside him. Yeah. Is that how you answer the phone? What's up? Are you home? Yeah, um, it's not a good time. Pretty sure good times are behind us. A bang at his window. Frank looks over and sees Claudia appearing through the half-closed curtains. He looks incredulous as he reluctantly rises and walks to the door. As soon as he opens it, Claudia breezes past him inspecting every room in his apartment as she talks. Does Venture Industries LLC mean anything to you? Come in. They own the warehouse that cop was executed in front of. Doesn't sound familiar. Claudia returns to the living room and catches a glimpse of Frank's gun and drink sitting on the table. There's a deadly combination. She picks up the gun, inspecting its craftsmanship. It looks like I'm next. The voice called me out 6 p.m. tonight. It's a call to my lawyer I shouldn't have made. What's your lawyer saying? He doesn't know yet. Well, let's pay him a visit. Something tells me you'll need a ride. Frank takes the gun from her and places it back on the table. And no offense, this is between the two of us. Claudia plops down into an armchair beside Frank's end table of framed photos, one of which, as always, is face down. She casually picks it up as she talks and inspects it. In the photo, Frank holds his late daughter Zoe in a tight embrace, their cheeks squeezed against one another exaggeratedly. No offense, but it's kind of between all of us. 
If he knows something that can lead us to the voice, this nightmare is over. Put that down. Startled, she quickly returns the photo to its face-down position. Frank pulls back and calms himself. What did you do? You can find out tonight like everyone else. He decides to let her tag along on one condition. Will you wait in the car? I prefer not to, but I'm open to negotiation. He shakes his head at her tenacity. As promised, Claudia waits in the car in the driveway before an immaculate Beverly Hills home. Frank stands at the door. O'Malley opens it. He greets Frank with all the melodramatic sympathy he can muster. Frank, I'm so sorry about this. Whatever this is. How you holding up? He knows. The voice knows what we did. What makes you so sure? Frank holds his phone up to him. In his home office, O'Malley frowns as Frank's phone sits on his desk playing out its final moments. Frank sits on the other side, watching O'Malley for facial cues. You call an ambulance? Help me. I'll take care of it. Stay off the phone. I'll be right there. O'Malley's empathic demeanor is non-existent now. You're not my only client on this lunatic's radar. Martin Chen? What's his deal? Client confidentiality, Frank. You'd expect just as much from me. Anything to do with Venture Industries? That doesn't ring a bell. There's a subtle change in O'Malley's countenance. He scratches his ear and looks away as he speaks. All tells that Frank notices. Is there anything you can tell us? Sorry, Frank. Don't sweat it. Square it with Nora. Then play the tragic hero card. You put yourself in peril to save lives. You were on the cusp of becoming a mayoral hopeful. You mismanaged a personal tragedy. I got eight hours before the live stream. Where can I find Martin? I wouldn't advise that, Frank. Then why is that? What he's going through right now is ten times worse. Trust me. You don't want any part of that. Why aren't you helping us find this guy and put an end to this? Frank, I get it. You can't afford for this to come out. God knows Nora suffered enough. But it's gonna be out soon. And you'll be on the other side of this. And you'll be revered and forgiven. Because you went through this. You will have spared this country of massive casualties. Now if you'll excuse me, I have an appointment. I'm sorry. O'Malley walks to his office doorway and waits. After a moment, Frank joins him and they go. Claudia drives with a look of amused befuddlement. In the passenger seat, Frank grows exceedingly desperate. Martin? (laughs) Small world. We need to get his address. I know it. He gives her a look as she makes a U-turn. Do you know where all of us live? Of course. Gated community, though. Think he'll invite us in? Maybe he won't need to. Let's make one last stop. She whips another U-turn, leaving enraged motorists in her wake. Frank and Claudia stand before an apartment door as Claudia knocks. After a few moments, the door opens. Just a crack, as a chain guard keeps the opening narrow. Sam's face peers out of it, eyes darting around them frantically. 
A bandage adorns his forehead, and a few scrapes and bruises linger on his face. Frank and Claudia exchange a look at the unexpected sight of Sam's battered, paranoid state. Who kicked your ass? What do you want? Can you open up? We need to talk. About what? We gotta get in touch with Martin, and we need your help. I don't know him. What can I do? I I can't help you. You can get us to him. Listen. How do you know where I live? What? Who else is here? Did you bring... Are there... Did you bring the FBI? Is the... Is the cop with you? What's his name? Hey, Psycho. It's just us. Quit freaking out. Man up. And open the goddamn door. I'm dealing with some things right now. Sam tries to slam the door, but Frank slips a foot in, blocking it. I'm next. We're not going anywhere, so let us in and put the gun away before you shoot yourself. Sam calms slightly, coming back to his senses. It's going to happen to you, too. It's going to happen to all of us. It already is. Sam lowers his head and breathes deep. Behind his back, he slips a gun, which was hidden but held at the ready all this time back into his waist as he unlocks the door chain. In the federal building, Brubaker paces back and forth in a conference room, blinds drawn. He studies a wall monitor which shows images of the Black Site building, photos of the recovered nuclear device, the location in which it was discovered, and close-ups of the device itself. His phone vibrates. Go for Brubaker. Who or what was the target? Any idea? Have all persons of interest been relocated? Reviewing the surveillance known. We gotta believe this voice had help from the inside to plant that device. Have every employee in that building investigated, including any who have left in the last eight months. You need to tie up all your loose ends. Brubaker peeks through the closed blinds. Spots Orson walk by. And I need to tie up mine. Orson grabs his coat and heads out an exit. Brubaker's eyes follow him all the way. In his apartment, Sam sits at his laptop, studying his monitor. Claudia leans along the arm of a couch nearby. Frank keeps his distance in Sam's dining room, working on another drink as he watches TV. On the TV, a news segment runs a montage of images of Rashonda Mickelson, each photo transitioning into the next with tacky special effects, from her childhood pictures to her elementary school and high school years, from her marriage to her husband Armstrong Mickelson and birth of their child, to the teen version of that child, Josiah Mickelson. The voice of a news anchor plays over it all with an inappropriately sensational tone. Child. Daughter. Businesswoman. Mother. Murderer. Just who is Rashonda Mickelson? Once a simple mother raising an innocent young boy, Mickelson now stands as an accused killer. But her vengeance on the officer who took her son's life has now led her to a fight for her own. Join us live tomorrow night as I sit down for an exclusive one-on-one with Rashonda Mickelson. We'll explore her life as wife of social justice crusader and lawyer Armstrong Mickelson, as well as her work as a community organizer in her own right. We'll discuss her loss and why she felt her alleged murder of LAPD officer Mac Devlin was justified. 
Images now play of protests and demonstrations in front of Rashonda's jailhouse. Both sides of protesters yell and scream at one another. One protester wears a t-shirt that says, The voice is our voice. We stand with Rashonda. We stand with every mother whose son has been taken from them at the hands of police whose abuse of authority will no longer be tolerated. The voice understands that our anger will no longer be ignored and our sister will not stand alone. Another protester takes an opposing view. They need to look at violence in their own communities before taking their frustrations out on law enforcement. It does their side no good to uphold lawlessness. Whoever this voice is, he is not a hero. He is a grave danger to our society and must turn himself in immediately. This is not how you achieve justice. You achieve justice through the courts. Video footage plays of Rashonda in an orange prison jumpsuit in court with her lawyer standing before a judge. We'll ask Rashonda for her thoughts on the groundswell of love from her supporters and the onslaught of demonization from her detractors. We'll even delve into how she feels about her... Hmm, commercialization? Videos fill the screen of protesters wearing Team Mickelson hats and their opposition sporting Team Devlin t-shirts. Join us for all of this and more tomorrow night at 10. As the news drones on, Sam watches, engulfed in the story, as well as his own pain and guilt. I can't... Sam, the only one who can hear that voice, jumps in his seat a little, before closing his eyes and regaining his composure. Claudia notices and grins. Demons catching up to you? What do you know about it? You kidding? My demons and I are the best of friends. Oh yeah? Yours got you barricaded in your home wondering who's gonna break in next? If you think I'm gonna have a pity party for a murderer, you can forget it. My partner killed that kid. I didn't do anything. Exactly. You didn't do anything. That one hit Sam deeply. Meantime, you make out like a bandit. According to the news, you've got supporters crowdfunding you. Uh, what is it? Close to a mill now? I got nothing to do with those racist assholes. Too bad. It's your goddamn base now. How's it feel making money off of killing a black kid? Enough. Frank's voice quells the argument. Sam, check the email again. Sam looks at his laptop. Yeah, got it. Okay. An informant of ours was able to hack his Wi-Fi security code. Frank downs the rest of his drink and rises. Claudia follows suit and both take a place behind Sam, watching his screen. What makes you think Martin knows any more than we do? His lawyer's my lawyer. And my lawyer's full of shit. Let's go. Claudia heads out. Frank starts after her, but Sam grabs him by the arm. Speaks to him in confidence. Hey. You're black. Why aren't you, like, tearing me apart right now? Maybe that's what the voice wants. Frank walks to the door, then stops to face Sam once more. Besides, if I don't forgive you, who's going to forgive me? Frank goes. Sam takes a moment to reflect on that before heading out to join them. O'Malley reclines in the back of his limousine on his phone. He's not talking. No way a domestic terrorist picks four strangers at random. He's hiding something and we need to get it out of him. 
idea is your responsibility. He ponders that as he readies a line of coke and snorts it. Uh, uh, put him on. Vera rises from the couch and crosses to Martin, who sits bloodied and bound in a chair. She holds the phone to his uh, ear. Hello? Hey, buddy. Uh, Al? What's going on? That's what we need to know, Marty. Just tell Vera who the voice is. Her people pay this troll a visit, and this all ends. I don't know. Please help me. Well, that's what I'm trying to do here, buddy. But we need to help each other, huh? Come on, give us a name. Martin pulls his face away from the phone in frustration. This isn't working. There's a chance he really doesn't know. And there's a chance he really does. All right, I'm heading over to you. Maybe I can talk some sense into him. Vera hangs up and leans over Martin, stroking his cheek. Oh, Marty, where did we go wrong? We had such high hopes for you. You could have had it all. Perhaps I overestimated your loyalty. Why won't you tell me who your friend is? Vera, please. Someone set me up. Who? I don't know. Who are the other three? I don't know. For someone as smart as you, you don't seem to know very much. We're running out of options. But we still have a few. She nods to one of her men, who readies a needle. Her other man grabs Martin's arm, ties it down, and rolls up his sleeve. No, please. Vera, please don't. Please. Martin is slugged across the face. <laughs> One year earlier, Martin makes dinner for Angela and his son, Miles. He clearly has no clue what he's doing in the kitchen as he makes a mess and burns himself. But Angela politely obliges his indulgence. Ooh. Do you need help, sweetie? No, I got it. I'm good. A splash from a boiling pot forces Martin to recoil. Ah. Are you sure about that? Just sit back and let me work my magic. Angela shares a laugh with her son at Martin's expense as he fixes two plates of food and places them before them. For my little guy and my little birthday girl. Thank you, Marty. Angela leans in and they share a kiss. Before they can share another, the doorbell rings, separating the two as they exchange looks of curiosity. Martin opens his front door, revealing Vera. The sex appeal turned down, but not by much. Vera? Is everything okay? Did I interrupt something? No. Well, we were just sitting to breakfast. Vera peers over his shoulder. He follows her eyes to find Angela standing behind him. Oh, Vera, this is my wife, Angela. Angela approaches and Martin throws an arm around her, doing a little too much. Vera shakes Angela's hand as the two size one another up. It's her birthday. How lovely. Do you mind if I borrow Marty for a moment? Well, okay. But be sure to bring him back the way you found him. Vera barely smiles as Martin leads her away. Angela's politeness fades, watching them go. Marty? On Martin's patio... He and Vera sit beside one another at a table. Martin holds a tablet in his hands, scrolling occasionally as he studies it. Vera watches him in admiration. 
What do you plan to do? Lease it? That's an option. Industrial assets are making a comeback. I'll look into it. It's all about location and what it could be used for, of course. Being in close proximity to coastal ports, that's a huge plus. I need you to take a trip for me. Martin's attention is taken away from the tablet. A trip? Where? To Brazil. <laughs> I can manage international properties from here. Yes, but I'm very hands-on when it comes to my business. She rubs Martin's leg under the table. He sits straight up, looking around for his wife. And this particular interest needs a personal touch. Trust me, I will make it worth your while. Martin's mind returns to his present situation. Martin now lies on the floor. Still bound to the chair and now gagged, he is bruised and barely conscious. Vera studies him from the couch. What would it take to break you, Marty? Your wife, perhaps? Your child? Would it take the sound of your child begging for his life? Or are you the only one you truly care about? The security code beeps at the front door. Vera perks up. Hmm. Looks like we'll find out sooner rather than later. On her command, her men flank each side of the door. Martin pleads through his gag. No, please, no. They draw their guns, hold them at the ready, then wait. The door opens. No one's there. The men exchange confusion. One of them raises his gun and steps closer to the outside. As he leans out, a bullet penetrates his leg and he goes down. Before the other man can react, Frank, Claudia, and Sam rush in. Vera leaps to her feet. Martin breathes a deep sigh of relief. Sam trains his gun on the fallen henchman. Frank aims his at the one left standing as he addresses the room. Hey! What's up? What the hell do you think you're doing? We're gonna need to borrow him. Claudia crosses to Martin and undoes his restraints. We don't want any trouble. You haven't seen trouble. Marty, your friends are gonna make it worse for you. Ooh, Marty, huh? Why are we that close? Claudia hoists Martin up and helps him to the door. The fallen henchman makes a move for his gun. Don't even think about it. But Sam aims squarely for his head and the henchman moves his hand away. Sam keeps aim as Frank, Claudia, and Martin all move to the doorway. You will regret this. Claudia stops, eyes Vera one last time. You should be thanking us. For what? You're still breathing. The foursome retreat out the door, slamming it after them. By the time the henchmen have followed, their car speeds out the driveway and into the night. Vera stands in the doorway, fuming. At the Long Beach Police Department, Captain Orson lingers by the front desk. He grows a wide smile as Lieutenant Dorsey approaches. Lieutenant Dorsey. Lieutenant, you must need a really big favor. They embrace as only good friends do. Good to see you, Captain. How's the family? Kids are as bad as ever. Well, that's their default setting. What brings you out to Long Beach? 
I need to take a look at some security footage. That's it? Well, this footage has likely been restricted by the FBI. In a security room, Orson and Dorsey stand behind a security guard who sits before a wall of monitors. As he clicks on his mouse, a particular video rewinds and plays back. In it, Gailey, the getaway driver, slouches nonchalantly in the chair of an empty interrogation room. A moment later, Brubaker enters it. A manila folder is tucked under one arm as he carries two cups of water. He places one cup in front of Gailey and takes a seat across from him. Orson smiles curiously. I've been working with that guy for the last four months. He never offered me anything. Looks like that may have been a good thing. You suspect foul play? I like to keep an open mind, Lieutenant. 6 p.m. In her bedroom, Nora curls up on her bed, watching TV and crying tears of anger and loss, an old stuffed teddy bear clutched to her chest. On the TV, the familiar audio wave moves along to the rhythm of the voice's speech pattern. Above the audio wave reads, Breaking news. The chyron below reads, The voice speaks again. It is not power that corrupts. It's fear. The fear of losing everything you have. And everything you love. Back in his car, Orson watches from his phone, shaking his head in sympathy. Sam made a sacrifice. In return, you received the location of a nuclear device. That's one down. Three to go. I'm a man of my word. Are you a man of yours? Frank. Elias, older, frazzled, and disheveled, his life clearly in disarray since the car crash, slouches in a robe and tank top, looking miserable as he watches the broadcast on an old-school TV in a rickety home. I had high hopes for you. I supported your campaign. You were saving the world. But you soon learned that you can't save everyone. It's given you a privileged life. But the privilege should not get to define justice. Elias deserved justice. Elias perks up at the sound of his name. He deserved to know he wasn't responsible for your daughter's death. You were. You were, Frank. You and your alcohol dependency. Elias is filled with pain, rage, sadness, and confusion all at once. In Sam's apartment, he and Claudia are fixated on the transmission as well. Martin lies on the couch, regaining his strength. Frank sits alone in Sam's kitchen, drinking and brooding as his conscience takes him back to that fateful decision. In an L.A. Medical Center patient room, O'Malley tosses a disoriented Frank into the bathroom and turns the shower faucet on. Get your clothes off, Frank. Hurry up and get in there. There will be clothes waiting when you get out. I have to, I have Listen, to look at me. Just let you me smell see. like shit. 
You are a DUI waiting to happen. You understand? We need to get you sober, get your blood alcohol under control. But most of all, we need to get your story straight. Now get in there. O'Malley shoves Frank into the shower and storms out. Frank begins to undress. Frank sits in the ER waiting room as O'Malley leans into his ear, speaking in his instructional whisper. My people are telling me this Elias guy, he doesn't know what happened. He said he was tired, may have fallen asleep at the wheel. His police report is you're out. It was his negligence, Frank. End of story. You saw him drift into your lane. You did everything you could to steer clear. What time does Nora's flight come in? Their attention is taken by the doctor's entrance. Present day Frank downs another drink to wash away the memory. At the federal building, government officials, lawyers, cops, all watch the broadcast with a look of collective disappointment in Frank, the rooftop SWAT member included. How many pats on the back? How much misplaced sympathy and undeserved support did you embrace, Frank? Elias spent a year in jail for vehicular manslaughter. Ever wonder what that year was like, Frank? That should have been your year. What should happen to a hero who has fallen so far, Frank? Was he ever really a hero to begin with? Well, I'll leave that question to the revolution. Back at Sam's apartment, the audio wave flatlines, signaling the end of the live stream. It is replaced by a news anchor, at which point Claudia turns the volume down. She looks sadly towards the kitchen, where Frank makes another drink, his back to the others, and quietly sobs to himself. She shares that concerned look with Sam before both focus their attention on Martin. All right, Martin. We helped you. Time to return the favor. After all, you could be next. Now, what was that sweet woman trying to torture out of you? Martin manages to stand up. My family. Can we please? I need to make sure they're all right. Where's your phone? At the house. You can use mine. I don't trust who could be listening. I have to go to them. You need to talk first. You take me to them? I'll tell you everything. Sam and Claudia exchange a look. Sam leans into Claudia, gesturing in Frank's direction. Someone should keep an eye on him. Claudia nods agreement, then looks to Martin, threateningly as she approaches, gun in hand. Where are they? They're with my father-in-law in the Palisade. I'll take you to them. But don't test me, you understand? If anything goes sideways, you're the first one to go. You get me? Yes. I understand. Gunfire permeates the air as bullets pierce the living room window. All four drop to the ground, ducking for cover. That concludes Chapter 3 of No Other Way. I am its creator, James Dinkins. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear more, please feel free to donate to our production at paypal.me slash dinkinsfilm. That's paypal.me slash d-i-n-k-i-n-s-f-i-l-m. And be sure to follow us on social media 
at no other way pod. That's no other way, P-O-D. Thank you for listening.